Amos in the Old Testament. Give you a minute to find that. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So if you find one of those, you'll, you might have to go backwards or forwards, but Amos is in there, one of those minor prophets. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can we pause before we go on and just take an extra moment for a word of prayer, inviting God's help this morning? Lord Jesus, we ask that you will help us in a special way. Father, we pray that what is heard and seen this morning is not me and my words, but that it's you and your word, that you will come near and let us know that you're here, that you're with us. We pray that you will work to clear away all of the, the debris, everything that does not belong in our lives that might stand in the way of you working and doing what you want to do. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Yes. But the marvelous grace of Jesus, I just, I'm just such a blessing. And I'm just so thankful. I just want to praise you this morning. Amen. It's Christmas time. Christmas time of 1990. And um, my family, my mom and dad and sister and myself had left our home in Tennessee to go to Indiana, just a little north of Indianapolis, to be with my mom's family for Christmas. And uh, as would often happen, my sister and I had gone to an aunt and uncle's house where uh, they had a, a child about our age, our first cousin, and uh, was one of the part of the family that we were close to. And so my mom and dad had stayed at uh, my grandparents' home, and we had gone to this uncle and aunt's house uh, to spend the night. And and uh, that was always kind of a fun thing that my sister and I looked forward to when we were kids. And uh, when the next morning, my aunt uh, took us from her house a few miles to back to our grandparents' home, we walked into, uh, through the door into the living room, and we walked into the middle of a prayer meeting. And it wasn't one of those, <clears throat> wasn't one of those kinds of prayer meetings where it, it was the the joy of, of God's presence and the joy of the Lord, but there was a heaviness and and uh, just a sense of, uh, of being overwhelmed, and uh, uh, both Joy and myself knew immediately that something was wrong, something had happened, and uh, there, after we had walked through the door, interrupting the prayer meeting, uh, they stopped, and our parents explained to us that they had received a phone call very early that morning that our home in Tennessee had caught fire and burned to the ground. This is not an actual picture, but it's about as close as I could find to what it looked like. It was everything completely gone, completely destroyed. 
the only things really that we had left was a few things that were in storage and uh, then whatever we had packed to take with us for that trip. Otherwise, everything was gone. There were uh, musical instruments, guitars, two or three that I had that I was at that time really kind of just learning to play. I was about 12 years old at the time. Uh, there were, uh, oh, family heirlooms and family photographs and all of the things that, that you could think of that maybe don't have any real material value or intrinsic value, but they're just valuable to you because of what it is and because it's part of who you are and part of your history. My dad, as a, as a pastor and an evangelist, a preacher, lost years and years worth of sermon notes and sermon study. And, and now that I'm where I am in my own life, and I, I can look back through some of my old notes, and I, some of them I see, and I think, well, it, it probably wouldn't hurt some of those to go in the fire. But, uh, but oh, what a, what a tragedy to have all of that uh, lost. And, <clears throat> you know, what do you do? Well, there's nothing to do but just start over. And with God's help and God's grace, we started over. I remember being there in Indiana for another couple of days and then taking about the six or seven hour trip back home. And, and the closer we got to home, the more that those feelings of discomfort and almost nausea welling up within us, knowing what we were going to see when we got home, and uh, just really overwhelming. But we had the support of a lot of family and a lot of good friends, and we started over. One of the things that sticks in my memory for some reason was the, the neighbor that lived kind of back behind where our home was, where our property was. He, I don't remember what he did for a living. I just remember that he had a bulldozer. And he offered, one of the things he, he offered to do was to help us out with his bulldozer. And basically what they did was he came over with his bulldozer to our property and pretty much buried everything that was left. We had done what we could to kind of sift through the ashes and see if there was maybe anything left that, that could be salvaged, and there was almost nothing, really very little. Um, and so all of the debris, the ashes that were left were, were, were buried. And I can remember where we would walk back and I would go back down the driveway where we would have at one time seen the little place where we used to live. It wasn't much, but it was our home. We would see the little place we used to live and then going from that to a what became a pile of ashes and then after the pile of ashes, it was smooth, nice, it, it, I think you'll understand what I mean by this, clean-looking dirt, if that clean dirt doesn't really make sense, but I think you know what I'm saying. It, it just all of the, what was left of the, the ash heap, uh, all of that was gone, and it, it looked fresh, like something new was starting. 
that's exactly what was happening. Something new was starting. And it wasn't long before, uh, I mean, at the time it seemed to take forever, but really looking back, it wasn't long before a new home was there in its place and all around that area where there had been at one time an ash pile and then what became smooth dirt, grass was planted and new life began to grow and begin to come out of what had been lost. I want to take a few minutes this morning to talk to you from Amos chapter 9 about clearing the way, clearing the way. And I don't have a specific passage that I'm going to read to you, but I'll be referring to different verses uh, there from the last chapter of the book of Amos. So I want to encourage you just to keep your Bibles available to you as we refer to different passages throughout. When you look at the beginning verses of Amos chapter 9, it sounds overwhelmingly like a declaration of God's judgment. And in many ways it is. We read things like how Amos says he saw the Lord standing beside the altar and said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. In other words, the temple is going to be destroyed and it's going to fall on top of the people. People are going to be killed and those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one shall escape. And he goes into great detail in verse 2 about explaining that wherever people try to flee, wherever they try to get away to hide from the judgment that was coming, the, the prophet, God is speaking through the prophet and is saying, nobody's going to be able to escape. There's not going to be any escape. However, as we continue to read through and study chapter 9 of the book of Amos, we find that it is not the final death knoll of the Israelites. It is a judgment, yes, but it is also a clearing away that must take place before God can come back and renew the kind of life that he intends for his people to have. It begins really with destruction and death. I mentioned to you already verse 1 of chapter 9 of Amos, and really it's a reference to the destruction of the temple there. It, it was the destruction of a temple, a place that perhaps at one time represented genuine worship of the one true God of Jehovah, but had, uh, because of the idolatrous and adulterous activity of God's people, had become a temple really of idolatry. And so God says that that temple, that place that no longer represents or points to Yahweh, the one true God, that has to go. That needs to be destroyed, cleared out of the way. I'll mention again verses 2 through 4. This is talking about the people that somehow escape uh, from the destruction 
the destruction of the temple and then uh, they flee and, and these verses say if they dig into Sheol, if they go down to the place of the grave, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And this kind of describes the death and the judgment of the traitors of Yahweh, those people that were at one time called by God's name and knew the one true God, yet they had committed spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication against God, had gone after idols. And God is saying not only must these, these buildings, these temples, and these high places that, that no longer point to me or focus on me, those need to be destroyed, those need to be cleared out of, out of the way. But he's saying also the traitors to me, those people that were not loyal to me, loyal to Jehovah, those need to be cleared out of the way. Verses 5 and 6 describe the one who is responsible. It is the Lord God of hosts. We read at the beginning of verse 5, in fact, that, that reference to Jehovah as the Lord God of hosts. If you read through the book of Amos, you will find that that title is used repeatedly. I believe it's at least, I think, maybe nine different times. Uh, Amos refers to Jehovah as the Lord God of hosts. In other words, he is the God of all of the armies. And, and the message of judgment was that the Assyrians were coming. But God wants his people to know that it's not just this outside group that's coming against you, but he wants them to know that it is, it is judgment from God himself, the Lord God of hosts. He is in control. And really, who can stand when it is the Lord God of hosts who is against you? Oh, friends, I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be in the position where I find that it is the Lord God of hosts who is against me. May God help us and have mercy on us. Over, It's interesting, over in chapter 7 of the book of Amos, God gives Amos a number of warning visions. And the first one, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Amos has this vision uh, of locusts coming. And locusts were devastating to, uh, to the... Uh, agricultural community to the people there in that part of the world. And, and uh, he says it was when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. In verse 2, uh, he says he, and he, he saw their vision. The locusts had come and eaten up all of the harvest, all of the grass. And Amos then began to plead and intercede for the people and say, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. 
And as a result of his intercession, his praying, God relented. Verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Another was a judgment by fire that came and devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And, and again, Amos prayed and interceded and said, Oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord again relented concerning this judgment. There are some things, friends, that seem so, so terrible, so awful, and, and especially when it feels as if God is moving against you. How can you stand? How can you, how can you survive? Sometimes our own lives feel like the world is against us and perhaps even as if God himself has turned against us and we may be left wondering, God, how can we get through this? How can, how can we survive? But as I mentioned a moment ago, Though this sounds like it might be the toll of the, of the bells uh, of death, the, the funeral bells tolling for the nation of Israel, it's, it's not. It's not really the end. Because what is happening is after this destruction and death, there is a time of dormancy. Do you know what something is when it's dormant? When something is dormant, it's, uh, there is the appearance of, of death. The is, there is the appearance of, of no life, no life left. But the reality is there is still very much the potential for life, the potential for renewal and revival and refreshment. It's not the end. And over in, uh, again, Amos chapter 9, verse 8 and 9 we read these words, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. In other words, God's judgment upon his people is simply the, the removal, the clearing away of what does not belong and what distracts and detracts and takes away from the worship of the one true God. But he will retain, he will, he will save and preserve the life of his people. <clears throat> you know, a dormant seed is one that does not come to life and grow when sometimes it typically would or when you would expect it to. Uh, dormancy is a, is a mechanism that is built in to prevent germination during unsuitable conditions or when the probability of a seedling survival is low those seeds will go dormant and lay dormant for some time. In the mid-1990s, when archaeologists began excavating in the courtyard of a medieval monastery, they found seeds there that had been dormant for more than 400 years. 
And as the archaeologists were there disturbing the ground, keep in mind these, this was an area, this was a monastery that had been active in about, the, in about the early 1500s, and that monastery had been closed uh, since 1539 by King Henry VIII. And now that the archaeologists are there disturbing the ground, these 400-year-old seeds began to sprout and grow again. Isn't that amazing? What's even more interesting is uh, you can look this up uh, like I did the other day. As far as I'm aware, the oldest seed that has ever grown was recovered from excavations at Herod the Great's palace in Masada in Israel was a Judean date palm. And somehow or another, the seeds of this Judean date palm had been preserved uh, in a cool enough, a dry enough place that though it had been about 2,000 years, there was still life left in that seed. And in the year 2005, this seed germinated. And again, grew. People, sometimes we look at our own lives and where we are uh, spiritually and what's going on with us and think, oh, is there ever a real possibility for God to help me grow to be the kind of person that he really wants me to be? We may look at loved ones and friends and neighbors that seem far from God and uninterested in, in spiritual things and wonder if there's ever any hope for God to bring life and renewal and refreshment. We may at times as a congregation look at our church and, and many of you can look back in days gone by and remember the good days when these, these pews were full and sometimes the building itself was overflowing and you may wonder, can God ever bring renewal and refreshment? But friends, I want you to know that sometimes though it seems God turns against his people and there is nothing but destruction and death, that sometimes it is simply God working to clear away what does not belong so that the dormant life that remains deep in the heart can have room and have space to again germinate and sprout and grow. The few minutes that remain, I want to talk to you three points. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Three points from Amos chapter 9. I want to talk to you about rebuilding, first of all, rebuilding the fallen, Rebuilding the fallen. You notice that destruction comes first. Again, chapter 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. He said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of the people. These temples that once perhaps pointed to me, pointed Jeho to Jehovah, they now represent the worship of idolatry and pagan gods, and those things need to go. They need to be destroyed. They represent nothing but rivals to Yahweh. But look down in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. In that day, it says, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches or the broken places in the wall and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. 
friends, there are things that sometimes don't belong, that detract, they divert our attention from the true worship of the true God. There's an old song that some of you may remember, so you may not admit it if you did remember, but I think from back in the, from back in the 50s, a song that said, My heart is a chapel, and the Lord is always there. When I walk, He walks beside me. Every uh, something, every whisper is a prayer. Um, and, you know, and, and I guess there's some element of truth to that. My heart is a chapel. God's word tells us that our bodies, we are the temple of the living God. But friends, too often our hearts become temples or shrines that represent worship of fortune. People get caught up with earning a living and making money. And I, I can look back at many that I went to Bible college with or that I crossed paths with in, in Bible college and some of them that seemed to have a call to ministry and seemed to have a passion for it and, and seemed to possess the gifts and graces and yet they got distracted by working and making a living. And then their life took another direction when they at one time expressed a feeling that they were called to serve the Lord. Sometimes our hearts represent temples to family or to, I was trying to think of another F. I had fortune and family and football. I, you know, maybe football's not your thing. Maybe it's basketball or, or, or soccer or whatever. Down here at Elden Line Park, they, they've got a new thing. They've got Frisbee golf. That's another F. You, you know, it, it does, I, I like the alliteration. It helps me remember things. Um, but it might not be any of that. It could be Facebook. There's another F. Um, it could be anything that wraps up our heart and wraps up our attention. And our hearts are, rather, our bodies, other than instead of serving as a, a temple that is focused on worshiping God and God alone and being everything that he wants us to be, it becomes a temple to something else. And sometimes before God can rebuild what doesn't belong needs to be destroyed. It needs to go away. Rebuilding the fallen, reviving the faint, reviving the faint. Notice that there is death that takes place first before revival. I have told you before, I've been in a position quite a number of times to help uh, to assist in a hospital setting where uh, someone was, they were in decline, They're, they were on their way out, they're in that terminology, in that world, they were in code blue, and uh, doctors and nurses are there working, and, and very many times I'm there working and, and doing CPR and pumping away, and friends, I never yet did CPR on somebody who had a strong pulse and a blood pressure just never had to do that you know why well it's just not necessary it's just not needed you don't do that when 
somebody has a strong pulse. Death takes place first before revival comes. And God here says in uh, verse 2 through 4 of chapter 9 that all of those people that were guilty of pursuing, following after other gods and, and uh, failing to be loyal to himself, none of them will escape. They all need to die. No escapees. Can I tell you kindly, friends, that you are born with a traitor inside you? Some of you will know what I'm talking about, and some of you may not. But you are born with a traitor inside you. And however you look at this, I know some of us may come from a variety of doctrinal perspectives along this line. But as far as I know, every orthodox Bible-believing church believes that sin remains in the heart after conversion. I'm not talking about guilt of sins committed. Those are forgiven in salvation. We're washed clean. We become a new creation, and, and I, I don't want to minimize that or take anything away from that, but there remains a condition in our hearts that is traitorous to God's work in us and what God wants to do. And friends, if you ever serve God and have the kind of spiritual life that God intends for you to have, that traitor within you needs to be placed upon the cross with Jesus, and if at all possible, it needs to die. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And understand, friends, that this is, this is not the death of anything or the loss of anything that is integral to who you are as a person. It is simply the, the nature within you that causes you to be bent inwards towards yourself and away from God's plan and God's will for you. You see, friends, it's the traitor that set up the false gods in the temple. You remember we spoke a moment ago about rebuilding the fallen and that some of those things need to be destroyed. They need to be those false uh, uh, temples, those altars to idol worship. Those things need to be torn down. They need to be destroyed. And yes, that's true. They do need to go away. But friends, it's the traitor within that sets up those things to begin with. And the traitor needs to be destroyed. But it's only so that real life can begin. Verses 8 and 9. God says, I will utterly destroy that sinful kingdom, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And friends, sometimes when God works in us and works on us, it may feel like he's stripping away everything that matters to us, everything that's important. And we might be left wondering, oh God, is there going to be anything left of me when you're done with me? 
But friends, God will not allow anything to fall to the ground that is integral or crucial to who you are, as, as who he intends for you to be. Rebuilding the fallen, reviving the faint, and then finally, friends, restoring the fruit. Restoring the fruit. Notice again, something has to come first. And it's dormancy. Dormancy comes first. You know, Israel was an agricultural community. They, they lived and they survived uh, through planting and growing and harvesting crops. And one of the things that's interesting, I'm going to skip over that verse for the sake of time. One of the things that's interesting about what God taught his people to do was about keeping Sabbaths. And you know, there was a, a, a Sabbath that was one day out of every seven. But then there was also a Sabbath of years that took place. One year out of every seven for the land was to be kept as a Sabbath. And the land was to be left lying dormant. They weren't to, they weren't to plant or harvest any crops on those years. And God promised them that if they would keep his Sabbaths, that the sixth year before the Sabbath year would be a bumper crop and there would be enough to supply them not only for that year, but for the next two years, the year of the Sabbath when they didn't plant or grow anything, and then for the first year after the Sabbath, there was going to be enough left over while they were planting and waiting for another harvest. That was God's promise. And then there was also to be a Sabbath of Sabbaths. That was to be the year of, of Jubilee. You know, it's interesting. There always seems to be people who have a hard time trusting God and taking him at his word. All the way back in the very beginning of the, the history of the nation of Israel, when God was bringing his people through the wilderness and he gave them manna from heaven and they gave them special instruction, you only take enough for what you need for that day except for the day before the Sabbath. On that day, you take a little extra and you save it. And what's interesting about the story is that that was the only day that the extra would last another day. So they didn't have to go and collect it on the Sabbath day. They didn't have to work. But, you know, there were people who on those other days when they weren't supposed to, there were some that tried to save a little extra, you know, just in case. You know how we are. We're, you know, human nature really doesn't change. You start try to save a little extra just in case. And whenever they did it, those days it rotted and spoiled and grew worms. Nasty. You know, the results of failing to trust God are never in our favor. They never work to our advantage. God had commanded the people to keep his Sabbaths, and they failed to keep his Sabbaths. And, and part of the purpose of the exile was that God sending his people out of the land and sending them to Babylon, sending them into exile, part of the purpose was so that the land could have its Sabbath rest that it failed to get all during the time when God's people were there. You can read it, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. And it might lead us to ask the question, why did God care that much 
church. You know, it's still an agricultural thing now to, at times to allow land to lay fallow or, or sometimes they do it by rotating crops and and, you know, the idea behind it is that the, if you keep growing the same crops in the same place over and over and over again, it leaches those certain nutrients out of the soil and the soil degrades and deteriorates until it's not what it ought to be. You say, well, is that what God cared about? Is that why so the soil? Well, I'm sure that's partly what it was because God was, you know, God knows what he's doing. God knows about agriculture, Surely. But was that the only reason? No, that wasn't the only reason. Primarily, what the Sabbaths represented was the, the people's complete trust and devotion to God. You see, what does it take for a period of time to stop working? To stop putting forth any effort for your survival, for, your, for feeding your family, for all of the things that you need to subsist. What does it take to stop doing that for a period of time? Doesn't that take trusting that God will provide for you? Absolutely. And that's what the Sabbaths did. They, they were the people, one of the ways that his people represented to Yahweh and to the world around them, hey, we, we, we're trusting in God. We're trusting in Him to provide us. You see, fruit must come from God. And oh, friends, that we would learn to rest and trust in Him. And this was the purpose of the Sabbath and the purpose of the land uh, lying dormant. And over in uh, Hosea chapter 10, uh, references this, verses 11 through 13, says Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. That word steadfast Love is that Hebrew word chesed that I refer to every once in a while that means it's kindness, but it's much more than kindness. It's, it's loyal kindness. It's loving kindness. It's tender mercies. It doesn't stop. And that's what God was looking for from his people. And before restoration of the fruit can take place, God says, what stands in the way as a barrier, it needs to be destroyed. Some things need to die. The traitor needs to die. And then there might be a period of dormancy, but what is left there, the potential for life, will then have the possibility of growing unhindered and demonstrate true loyalty, faithfulness to Jehovah God. Chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. You know, I had to think about that verse for a little while. Think, what, is that, what is that saying? The plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Well, you, you can think about it this way. Certain time of year, we would see this, you know, earlier in the year, we would see about actually this time of year, you see the, 
the, the tractor going out, plowing the field, or, or maybe it's a garden. I see Brother James out in his garden doing this, and he's getting ready for planting, and there's a time of planting. And then what we are accustomed to is if, if you, you know, if you have good soil and you've taken care of it and whatever, then a number of months later, a number of months later, you have this. You have the time of harvesting. Can you imagine what it would be like if there was so much potential for life and fruitfulness in the ground that the combine, the harvester, had to go right behind the planter? Just the planter was, things were popping up out of the ground as quick as the planter could put the seed in, and the harvester had to go right behind him, harvesting and saying, hurry, get out of the way, get out of, we've got to get this, we've got to get this harvest in. That's what God is promising This promise of fruitfulness when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and there's going to be so much potential for life and for fruitfulness that the the one planting the seed will have to get out of the way for the harvester to come behind them. We can't imagine that because that just, that doesn't work in our life. But that's what God says. I'm going to close with this. I'm almost done. When I was about 13, 14 years old, we went to a little bitty town in Indiana called Shirley, Indiana, for a revival meeting at the Church of the Nazarene there. And we had family that was part of that church, and so we had already heard before we got there, that there were some kind of exciting things going on. And when we got there, sure enough, there was some excitement taking place. In fact, that was the only place... Now, you all remember having revivals go past the scheduled date. I'm sure that's probably happened here a time or two, where you got to the end of what was supposed to be the end of the revival meeting, and, and God just seemed to be working, and there was so much of God's presence that you said, you know what, we, we can't stop. We've got to extend this a little while. That was the only time and the only place I ever remember that happening in my personal history. At that place, at that church, that particular time, we got to the end of the scheduled meeting. It just so happened that we had the next week open. And the pastor said, this is, God is moving and it's too powerful, we can't stop yet. And we extended the services another couple of days. But what was behind all of that was a little lady that was the first cousin of my granddad, my mom's dad, who's, who's been here, sang for you all before. Her name was Patty McLeese. She had been, in her younger years, a good, faithful Christian lady. She had served as the missionary president for her local church. She had been faithful when, for whatever reason, she grieved the Lord and she backslid and got away from the Lord, was away from God, for a long, long, long number of years. 
a month or two prior to this time that our family was at this church holding a revival meeting, Patty and her husband, I believe they were in vacation, on vacation, somewhere in the state of Texas. And while they were visiting there in Texas, she saw somewhere and noticed an advertisement for revival meeting at one of the local churches. And there was a little bit of, just a little bit of a stirring, a drawing within her. And she said to herself, oh, if only God would speak to me again. Because you see, she had gone in a backslidden condition for years and probably decades. And according to her own testimony, she said that God had not spoken to her one time. She had not felt one little bit of the stirring of God's spirit, of his drawing, pulling her and she had gotten to the point where she was afraid that she had passed a deadline and there was no longer any hope for her to find salvation. Well, she thought if there was any chance that God would speak to her again, that uh, she thought she ought to go. And so she went to this, to this revival meeting. And sure enough, God was faithful. God spoke to her she responded to an invitation. She prayed through, and I mean she came clear through. And she was, this was, I don't know, I suppose it was more common then uh, than it was now. This would have been the early 1990s. Uh, she turned back into one of these old-fashioned, shouting Nazarene saints. And her husband at the time said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically he said, if you're, you know, basically you've gone off the deep end. If, you, if you're going to go that direction, I don't want any part of it. And he left her, basically. But she stayed true. She stayed faithful. And that revival meeting where we were at, she sought the Lord and got sanctified in that revival meeting. And she continued faithful all the years of her life. And what one time had looked like it was dead, uh, a dead, dried up stump with no hope or possibility for life left new life came out beautiful beautiful christian life and friends that's what i want to leave with you this morning the songwriter said deep in the human heart crushed by the tempter feelings lie buried that grace can restore, grace can restore, touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, chords that are broken will vibrate once more. And friends, I don't know where you are. You might be in a position where you have to say, Pastor, there needs to be some destruction and death in my life. I need to break down some idols. I need to break down some some false uh, some some false shrines, some altars to some false gods. I maybe you struggle with the, the traitor within you, something that's pulling against God's will. I don't know what it is. But could I just invite you and encourage you this morning to come to God and say, God, whatever you want. Whatever you want. I'm I'm wide open. If there's anything you need to break down, if there's anything in me that you need to kill. If there's anything that needs to die so I can be everything that you want me to be, would you be willing to let that happen? Say, oh, pastor, I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what God might ask me. I'm afraid of what I might have to do. Friends, heaven will be worth any cost we have to pay. And quite honestly, I am convinced that seeing God move in His Spirit and power will be worth paying the price in this life. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Holy Father, we thank you for what you are able to do. We thank you for our confidence in you. Lord Jesus, we ask that you will search us out. And Lord, if there are any of us that have sore places in our lives that are hindering our spiritual growth, hindering our walk with you, Lord Jesus, we pray that you will put your finger on that place and press. Put your finger on that place and press. Lord, let us know where it is. And then, Lord, give us the, the determination to say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever I have to do, I'm going to mind God. I'm going to